Hello and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on the markets and helps you make smart choices with your investment. These are entirely our own views and that of our guests. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. Well, welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast. This is episode uh, 52. Um, I'm Nigel Grant, Head of Wealth Product here at ASB. Uh, I'm back in the host seat for my third time. Uh, I'm normally an avid listener of the podcast, so it's very exciting to be guiding the conversation again today. Uh, and what a very it's a fanboy uh, sort of moment for me, but what a very exciting podcast it is today with two special guests. Joining me today, um, first up, is Laurie Heinel. Now, Laurie is the State Street Global Advisors Global CIO, what that means is the Chief Investment Officer, uh, and along with that is an Executive Vice President. So along with leading an investment team of more than 600 professionals around the world, uh, Laurie oversees investment capabilities for State Street for everything from index funds to ETFs through to active multi-asset solutions and alternatives as well. So Laurie, welcome and hello. Hello, thanks for having me on the show today. And also joining us is ASB's very own Head of Asset Management uh, and someone who our listeners will have heard from a number of times already on the podcast, uh, John Smith, welcome. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks for inviting me back again. So Laurie, you're currently visiting Australia. Yes, I am. How are you enjoying it? Any observations um, and differences from where you're normally based to what you're experiencing in Australia? Well, as you know, I'm based out of Boston, and when I left uh, last Friday in Boston, it was negative seven degrees Fahrenheit, which uh, <laughs> if I do the conversion is uh, in the negative teens uh, from a Celsius scale. So I arrived here, and it was obviously much more pleasant. <laughs> uh, so I'm pleased to be someplace where I can walk around in short sleeves versus bundle up in my parka. Yeah. And um, for our audience... Um, while you have the mic, I guess it would be great to hear a little bit more about your background um, and what's led you to your current role um, and sort of any other, I guess, set, scene setting you want to give in terms of the context that you bring to the conversation. No, absolutely. And um, so I've been in investment management for uh, coming on my third decade now. So it's uh, been a little while. Uh, I started my career in the middle 80s, so I guess actually in total, uh, even a bit longer. So um, I've seen a lot of different things. I First crisis that I remember vividly was the 87 crash that we had. Uh, so that was uh, sort of a wake-up call to how do you think about markets and risks and how do you also recognize that this too shall pass. Um, spent many of my formative years working at a firm called SEI Investments out of Oaks, Pennsylvania, where we handled multi-asset portfolios. And I did a lot of uh, different things there, including running global product and the asset allocation teams there. Um, I've also spent some time at City Private Bank, where I ran investment solutions and worked closely with our uh, primarily high net worth clients on everything from asset allocation, portfolio construction to trust and estate planning and all manner of other things. And then prior to joining uh, State Street about eight years ago, I had worked at Oppenheimer Funds, which of course is part of Invesco now. So I've been CIO or uh, Global Chief Investment Officer now for just a bit over two years. Uh, but before that, I was uh, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer and have um, been very involved in all of our research, our, um, you know, programs and products, uh, really getting around to talk to clients about what their needs are and trying to make sense of markets the best that we can and, and helping clients provide for their return and risk management and liquidity needs. And before we get you know into the conversation themes and sort of the key topics I guess are on investors' minds, John, do you want to 
before we get going, get a bit of an explanation in terms of how State Street fits in to what we do at ASB, um, and that might sort of set the scene before we go into any more detail. Yeah, sure, Nigel. Um, so at ASB here, we, we've, we've put together a, a team of um, underlying fund managers uh, to to help us manage the portfolio of assets that we have for our customers. Uh, State Street is one of those. Um, many of our listeners will know that BlackRock is another one of those, and, 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 and we have... Uh, recently done a podcast uh, with with BlackRock with with their views on a very similar um, topic as to we're going to be talk, we're going to be talking to um, Laurie about today. So State Street is is you know an important one of our uh, fund managers within the team of fund managers we have managing their money. Uh, they manage uh, our global fixed income assets and our index Australasian assets. Uh, so um, we we really enjoy. Uh, the diversity of views that we get from that from that team of fund managers. So I think you know it's really a great opportunity to have Laurie in this part of the world and for us to be able to share uh, with our our customers and the, the listeners to this podcast um, that divergence of views. Well, let's get into the views. So there's a lot to lot to talk about. Um, obviously, investors will know the calendar year we've been through um, has been a year for. The ages, for lack of a better term, and 23 calendars kind of setting up. It had a rip-roaring start, so uh, lots to talk about. Laurie, what is State Street's house view right now um, and for 2023? Would you say you're more bullish uh, or bearish than others, and why? Well, that's a really good question. I would say right now we're probably more bullish, but that's a little different even than it was just a few short weeks ago. So as you noted, we tend in this industry to think in terms of calendar years. So what happened in 2022? What do we think is going to happen in 2023? And when we were putting forth our views for 2023 back in the fourth quarter of 22, one of the things that we were most concerned about was that central bankers were still being incredibly hawkish and that it was likely that they were going to go too far and that that was going to create a lot of tension in the first part of the year, which would manifest in higher volatility and lower markets. And so as recently as just a couple of short months ago, we would have been a little bit more conservative in our recommended positioning and would have been holding some cash and and been a little bit underweight, uh, the global equity complex. I will say that the middle of December sort of shifted that. Uh, Certainly what happened was you started to see uh, the Fed in particular or the central bank of the U.S., um, starting to talk a bit more dovishly and perhaps signaling that they had reached near the end of their hiking cycle and that it would be time to sit back and start to watch and see how those rate hikes had were playing through the system. Uh, and I think that gave a bit of a relief rally to the market. I think that's what we've experienced during the first part of 2023 is that markets have been responding to that idea that perhaps the central banks won't, in fact, choke off that very little bit of growth that we still have out there and that perhaps the inflation numbers would be coming down. But we still think that 2023 is going to be a year where it's going to be a lot of head fakes. And we're seeing it again in terms of, um, again, the Fed being at the front of the curve here, once again, suggesting that perhaps 5% isn't the terminal rate. Maybe it has to be something more than that. Uh, Some are even betting that might go as high as 6%. And it's our view that actually they have already done a lot of the hard work and that uh, inflation metrics are starting to tail down. And we are sort of riding the wave in terms of being a little bit overweight to equities right now. But we do think that it's a very precarious period that we're working through. So we are also holding a fair amount of cash just to be more opportunistic as good opportunities present themselves. 
That's um, that's really interesting, um, Laurie. What I'd like to, if I, can I just tease out the question there about there's an, an expectation of the peaking of inflation and some really strong disinflationary pressures, so that might lead the, the Feds to be able to stop their hikes. But the, the, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is how far down would inflation come, and and that that I think is 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 a is a is a real challenge. Is that you know the Fed chairman Powell, I think Powell is saying perhaps that that interest rates might have to be higher so that inflation will end up lower, and and there seems to be a little bit of tension in the market as to that particular aspect. No, absolutely, and I give um, all credit to our chief economist who really called the inflationary pressures uh, quite a bit earlier than many. Uh, when the Fed was still saying that inflationary pressures were transitory, uh, doesn't seem, it seems like forever ago, uh, frankly, but it wasn't that long ago, um, she was indicating that she was seeing data that suggested otherwise, and that the Fed was actually well behind the curve uh, when you know before they started their recent hiking cycle. And that, so that would have been back in you know Q3 of 2021, which again, seems like forever ago now. Uh, conversely, she's now um, looking at a variety of data, including um, the makeups of some of the inflation metrics to sort of lick through into what is driving those inf- inflationary impulses. And she's actually done some analysis that suggests that inflation is going to come down much faster than what uh, the central banks and many other market participants uh, forecast. And we actually have penciled in an exit rate uh, for U.S. inflation uh, in 2023 of something below 3%. Now, that seems probably a little bit on the uh, extreme uh, versus what we've seen uh, from others. But interestingly, she was most recently in a conference and she shared that about half the room was forecasting a Fed cut before the end of the year, and about half the room was forecasting that they would actually uh, not be cutting by the end of the year. But I think the market is kind of coming our way. Uh, the central bank isn't quite there yet. In fact, uh, as you've uh, probably heard, um, they're continuing to be very laser focused on concerns about inflationary pressures being a bit more sticky. Uh, but we think there's a lot of disinflationary impulse out there, and we actually think it's going to come down more rapidly than they expect. It's very interesting how you how you referenced um, the Fed being sort of like missing the transitory nature or assuming transitory nature where when it was coming through. It seems like what you're saying is that the markets aren't necessarily believing the Fed uh, again and the markets is sort of like a, charting a different path, which is which is quite interesting. And also what I would add is that the central bankers missed it, right? Mm. So in some respects, they're going to be even more cautious uh, in terms of looking at the current data that they're seeing in front of them. And if they're not seeing that data move in the right direction, they've got every incentive now to stay hawkish because mm. they you know, don't want to be caught flat-footed once again. And oh, by the way, there is this sort of view that, well, if we overdo it, we can just start cutting again. But again, those cuts will operate with a lag also. So the biggest concern that we've got is that by virtue of them being overly zealous about inflation fighting, they actually do choke off whatever little bit of growth is out there in the world, and that that actually um, runs us into more of a recessionary forecast versus the soft landing, which we currently think they can still navigate. What you just mentioned, I would sort of label as maybe that um, hard landing, maybe, or a particularly bumpy landing. Now, you're just moving along to your, or segueing into your, you guys have released your 2023 Global Outlook, um, navigating a bumpy landing. You know, Is that destination 
where we would land unknown. Um, are we going to get that? I've heard it soft landing, hard landing, no landing. I've heard mentioned <laughs> as well. What what do you, uh, what's your view on sort of the the most probable destination we will land? So our current core thesis is that we do navigate something like a soft landing in the sense that we don't forecast a severe recession on the back of the Fed rate hikes. We actually think that there's enough momentum in the economy to kind of carry us through so long as central bankers don't overdo it too much, right? And that's, and that's the reason for the bumpy landing. We, we debated uh, what terminology to use when we were publishing this particular uh, piece of research. And bumpy felt like the right idea because it's not going to be very clean and clear and only moving in one direction. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty around um, the pivot and unless and until they actually hit that point where they declare that they've done enough and they can wait and see how that data flows through. Um, And so the markets are going to keep debating that, right? And I think even amongst the Fed governors themselves, they're debating where they need to kind of land this thing. So our best guess is that we will achieve something like a soft landing if you define that as not putting the U.S. into a significant recessionary period. Um, our conviction level, I should say, around that is uh, relatively low, you know, more like 50%, not 75 or 80%. And, oh, by the way, the the probably worst case scenario is that because of the overzealousness in fighting inflation, we end up finding ourselves in a much, much worse position, i.e. a recessionary environment. The interesting thing... Um, I think is that and that this bumpy landing I think is a good analogy for the way that the markets themselves will play out this year. Um, as we're saying, there are divergent views. It's it's very very difficult. People are taking different sides, bullish and bearish, and and the data will come out and and it'll go one way or the other, and the Fed will come out and make their statements. So there's going to be quite a lot of volatility in the markets this year. Is 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 that your view? Well, it is, and it's interesting that you um, raised that because we've had this debate about why we're not seeing more volatility in measures like the VIX. I mean, obviously it's elevated just a bit off of where we had been, but it's certainly not in that kind of crisis mode. But then you have to also put it in perspective. I mean, one of the things that's been quite notable is if you looked back at um, you know quarterly returns for equities during the course of 2022, you saw massive swings. Right at certain points, we were you know down 15 percent. Then we next quarter we're up 15 percent. The next quarter we're down 20 percent. So it's um, the I don't think that the VIX or the traditional markers of volatility are telling the true story of what investors are experiencing. And there's a lot of volatility kind of under the surface. So if you look at the massive rotation in factor returns, you look at the massive rotation in various sector returns, things of that nature. So we we actually think that there's more um, you know, kind of volatility embedded in the system than um, what investors really appreciate. But that also then we think encourages this idea that we are going to have some bumpiness ahead and investors should retain some, you know, some cash and some other asset classes that can help protect the portfolio against that volatility. Laurie, what did you consider to be sort of the key drivers of I've got us to where we are. Um, so in 2022, I, I know inflation's obviously, we all know inflation happened. Mm. Um, but what were the standout factors that drove the year we just got through and now we're sort of hopefully coming through the other side of? 
Yeah. Well, look, this, in some ways, this has been a long time coming, right? And I'll just start in the fixed income part of the equation, right? So for many years now, we've been talking to clients about the fact that rates were artificially low. And keep in mind, it wasn't so long ago that the central bankers were desperately trying to manufacture inflation, right? That they were keeping policy rates well below what was appropriate given the growth rates that we were seeing uh, because there wasn't any inflation. And there were great fears about returning to more of a recessionary environment before we hit the COVID era. So um, one of the things that we've been talking to clients a lot about is the fact that at the rates that we were seeing in 2019, there was a lot of risk in the fixed income portfolio. It wasn't giving you very much income. It wasn't um, diversifying. In fact, uh, the correlations between bonds and equities had been running in lockstep. And oh, by the way, there were concerns that you wouldn't get the capital preservation out of that fixed income portfolio, particularly if we did start to see inflation come back and or interest rates start to rise. And lo and behold, we entered 2022 and we have this massive sell-off, not just in equities, but in fixed income as well. So for better or for worse, I think we're now in a different place for fixed income, right? Um, we may not be out of the woods as it relates to inflation just yet, but at least we're getting yield on fixed income and we might actually get a little bit of diversification because you have enough uh, opportunity for long treasuries, for example, to appreciate if we do actually have a severe uh, correction or, or a recession. So some of the things that led to 2022, especially in the fixed income world, have been years in the making. And then, of course, the other side of it was the equity side, which was really skewed by what we'd had in the COVID and post-COVID era. So again, we were, I think, early in saying that the COVID um, pandemic was not going to lead to a protracted deep recession. Uh, we actually felt that um, the fiscal stimulus that was provided, um, you know, income replacement, things of that nature, meant that consumers could weather that better than perhaps during past recessionary impulses. But what that also meant is that coming out of the lockdowns, consumers were flush with cash. Uh, they had very high savings rates. They were starting to enjoy going back into the labor markets and, and earning a wage. And so those things together really led to the buildup of this inflation that we saw where you had both the demand equation coming back in a very, very strong way and you still had the supply chain disruptions that were occurring because COVID was not, um, you know, wasn't sort of over yet. And you, you had a lot of economies that were still locked down, including China. So, so I'd say that the environment we experienced in 2022 was both a function of things that have been building for many, many years, i.e. Uh, non-standard interest rates, but also things that were very much uh, emblematic of the COVID crisis that we had just gone through. So, Laurie, I think it'd be a really interesting discussion to have just off the back of that, because you started with inflation and interest rates here. It would be interesting if you could sort of like dive a little bit more into inflation. Um, I think we've we spoke before, and you in your introduction, you referenced the fact that you started in the industry in the '80s, and and I did as well. And my first experience was was very similar to yours. The, the, the we were babies when we yeah. started, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we were we were very 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 young precocious babies. Um, but uh, but in '87, and and so that was that was the first crisis. But I suppose the thing I was thinking about there is that we've lived through 
periods of inflation. So the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when inflation was endemic and, and there was a, just a massive fight to, to get inflation down, many of our, I think, listeners and customers um, will have those same experiences. So the, the thing that's interesting in my mind is we're seeing inflation again. It seems almost um, too good to be true to be thinking that in the course of this year, inflation will come back down to 2% and, and it's all over, um, given that it took you know a good two decades to get it under control previously. And, and in my mind, much of the, the rationale for the, for the central banks fighting this inflation the way they are and as aggressively is is because they don't want it to become embedded. So what were the, some of those things that are maybe are different about inflation in the now than they were back in the, the sort of like the 70s and 80s? Yeah, so we don't think that the 70s are the right analog for what we're experiencing right now for a variety of reasons. So um, and I'll just sort of tick them off in no particular order. So the first thing is that you had um, this wage price spiral that led to entrenched inflation. And that was partly because of the nature of labor markets. Uh, Obviously, in places like the United States, there was a lot more unionization than there is today. You had less globalization at that point in time. So it was much more localized. Although, as we saw in the 80s, many industries were radically disrupted by globalization, including things like the steel industry, which had prior uh, prior to that been very prominent in the US. Um, You also had a number of other shocks that had happened. Certainly the oil price shock was something that um, I lived through in the 70s, for example, and and kind of rolling shocks around the world that uh, contributed to those elevated inflationary numbers. And oh, by the way, Today, we're worried about inflation that's in the mid-single digits. Back then, it was in the double digits. So um, we, while it's, you know, I don't want to be sanguine about the inflation that we're facing right now, it pales in comparison to the kind of levels that we were seeing at that point in time. And it was also this notion of stagflation, which is a term that was thrown about earlier last year that has sort of gone to the wayside a bit, but the growth was just um, abysmal as well. Um, and so I think there are a number of things that suggest that you know we're not there. Now, could there be things that are similar? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this whole idea of um, commodities shocks is part of what's contributing to the inflationary impulses. We saw oil prices, for example, go from you know around thirty dollars to around a hundred dollars a barrel. So there are some things that are rhyming with what we saw in the '70s. But let's look at the things that are also different. One, the demographics and structural growth rates uh, globally are not what they were back in those days, right? So we are, we're slowing uh, in terms of the uh, equilibrium rate for global growth, and, and demographics is a big part of that. We are deglobalizing, or at least there are fears around deglobalization, but there still are global supply chains that put um, you know a, at least some calibration on um, you know how you can have low cost. Uh, providers of of various goods and services. Um, You know, the other thing that I think is really important to note is that we don't think that it's a wage price kind of spiral. Um, Investors' inflation expectations are relatively well contained, and they don't have the same bargaining power that perhaps they once did. You know, technology is a big disinflationary force. So, again, things could turn for the worse, and and I could be eating my words, so to speak. Um, But at least at this point in time, we don't think that the 70s is the right analog. We actually think this is much more a series of shocks, 
easy monetary policy for way too long, a pandemic and then a war. And that trifecta is really it's what's driving the inflation. And those three things we don't think drive sustainable inflation. If they don't drive sustainable inflation, do they drive sustained interest, high interest rates or higher interest rates? Is the, do, the path you see for that is what? Yeah. So again, let's just go back to sort of basic relationships. If you believe, as we do, that the structural growth is, you know, let's say the U.S. is about 2%, let's say globally it's 35 or something in that range. Well, against that backdrop, then you don't think inflation is going to be 6 or 7 or 8%. It, you know, it might be 25 it might be 3 I mean, some people are arguing, and we would be sympathetic to the idea that there are some things like the green transition, which might be at the margin uh, inflationary and tick that up a bit. But again, you're talking about relationships that are much different than where they are today. And if you have a, you know, a, a view that um, long-term growth is three, three and a half percent globally, um, then you probably have interest rates that are anchored uh, somewhere in that kind of range. So the way we look at it, it's hard to tell exactly when. So if you ask me what our rate's going to be three months from now, it's, you know, I have a view, but obviously it's less likely that um, uh, that I have confidence in that view. But if you ask me where I think rates are going to be two and three years from now, I think we're going to be lower than where we are today. I think that you're going to see 10-year rates more in the sub-3% range because one of the most durable relationships is the relationship between growth and 10-year yields. And we've talked already about um, sort of what's what's happened, what are the factors that have been behind that as such, and also kind of how the year has started um, mm-hmm. in a strong way. In order for that, the strong start to continue, what are some of the um, things that you see having to go right as such, whether it's continue uh, sort of the momentum we're on or at least not, um, as some people I hear, you know, listen to say, you know, um, go back to the lows where we were. What has to stay right or happen for us to um, right the ship? Well, there are a couple of things and they don't all have to be perfect, but they're certainly things that investors are going to focus on. So one of the big fat questions will remain what's the terminal level of rates when central bankers are done? And the market has sort of gotten its head around that that terminal rate is somewhere in the fives, right? Again, I'm seeing more people ratchet that up to maybe five and a half or six uh, for the Fed, for example. Uh, But very few people are talking about a terminal rate that's, you know, 10 15, 18%. And again, keep in mind, uh, back in the day, you know, we did get rates like that on Fed funds. So as long as we're getting close, I, I think that the markets can hold. The second thing is, is inflation coming down? Because if inflation remains persistently high, even if terminal rates don't go too much beyond the five or maybe let's call it 6% at the outside, um, you know, them staying there for a long time is also very damaging because by definition, you've got rates that are significantly higher than the equilibrium growth rate. And so it's sort of costing the economy. So you, you need to kind of have um, a narrative where people get their head around the terminal rate and being more convinced that it's we're there or we're nearly there, and that inflation is starting to tick down. And then, oh, by the way, the other really important ingredient here is corporate earnings, because 
One of the things that has also been quite notable here is that corporate earnings have held in fairly well, considering the kind of um, backdrop that we've had. So you've had a pretty good re-rating of price-to-equity ratios, and that has also lured back investors. I would characterize January as a somewhat a, a bit of a fear of missing out episode again, because people tend to look out and see that you know markets could be higher and they don't want to miss that. But if earnings start to really collapse here because you start to see economic activity deteriorate or you start to see you know, margins compress dramatically, that would also be quite destabilizing for markets. Okay, so so there's this when's, when does it turn? And then there's the question about uh, how inflation, how we expect inflation to track. Then that's sort of like it's almost like the terminal rate of of interest rates on the other side. How low will they come? And I I wonder if actually. We've got a bunch of investors, particularly retail investors, who whose mindset is um, that it goes back to like the very low interest rate environment they had before. But um, so I, I wonder whether that will be the case. I'd be very very surprised if it was. So where does where does where does more normalised interest rates land? Yeah. So you know, more normalised interest rates probably land in the you know two and a half to three percent kind of range on a 10-year treasury, for example. And again, keep in mind that before um, this episode, so go back to, you know, the the teens, if you will, you had no inflation. Again, <laughs> it's easy to forget that central bankers were desperately trying to get a little bit of inflation. And you had artificially low rates in part because there was no inflation and they were really the only game in town to try to support growth, right? Because um, you, you had uh, in certain geographies like the Eurozone, no appetite for a lot of fiscal stimulus. Uh, people were concerned about leverage, things of that nature. But um, so going back down does not, in our view, mean return to 2019. Going back down means that from here, bonds are relatively attractively valued. Uh, but most important, as long as you're collecting a coupon of three or and a half or four uh, percent, and you get the potential for a little bit of appreciation as those yields grind down, maybe to sub three uh, percent, that's a pretty attractive environment for owning per, uh, fixed income. So we don't see that overshoot on the downside with interest rates. So sort of like that drive up in the equity. Unless we pricing. get a recession. Yeah, exactly <laughs> you know, right. That, that, that's the big if, right? So if um, central bank hawkishness and or just you know the lack of um, you know growth generally leads us to you know some sort of pullback and uh, you know you get a recession, then you kind of go back to. Uh, rates that might be approaching where we were at the lows, but again, that's not our core case. A lot, a lot of what we talked about today is um, is covered off in that 2023 global outlook. So I, I'd encourage anyone to have a read of it as well. It was really, really um, informative and well written, but also sort of summarises a lot of what we talked about today. One of the one of the lovely themes I took away from it, Laurie, was you know patience is a virtue. Um, and before we sort of get to wrapping up our conversation today. like, Can you expand a little bit on that concept and why you used it in particular in the outlook this time? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there, are, there were a couple of things that drove that. One was at that time having an even larger buffer of cash than we do now. And we do still have a fair amount of cash in the portfolio. But at that point, we had even more because we didn't want to be um, sucked into um, you know markets where they looked a little attractive but not very attractive. So 
part of it is being smart about your entry points and being confident that you are going to get a little bit better return if you could be a little bit patient and wait for a bit more of a pullback uh, and not chase performance. So that was part of it. But it was also this idea that you can't really predict where markets are going to be one, three, five months from now, but you probably have a better um, confidence in your predictions if you can go out three, four, five years from now. So patience is also about how to think about your time horizon as an investor. And our view is that if you have markets that look relatively attractive and you've got the right time horizon and you've got the liquidity, that is a match made in heaven uh, for investors. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, the point. This patience, patience thinking, and and your your reference to time horizon, it seems like the thing we repeat the most often. I mean, because you're always, you, you know, I, I think to myself, well, I'm looking forward to a year, and it's going to be a volatile year, and there's lots of uncertainty. And then I think, but but I've been doing this for thirty years. When when is any when, is, when, <laughs> when has any year that? been any different, right? <laughs> and the way you, your way you work through that is actually your your time horizon is longer. Mm-hmm. You know, don't stop sweating the next year and worrying about it because you've got years to come. And as you say, you have much more confidence about expectations over the longer run than over the shorter run. Um, and you know, let's just let's just watch how, you know, understand, you know, enjoy how the thing develops with the confidence that actually you've got a much longer time frame than having to be worried about, really worried about what happens in the next year. That's right. Yeah, I love that saying, don't just do something, sit there. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so let's wrap up the conversation here and um, close up with some wisdom. Um, Laurie, you first. Um, given sort of what we've talked about today and also the career and experience you have, are there any key bits of advice or, you know, things that you, um, you know, adhere to or think are investors should keep top of mind in 2023? I think there are two things that I'd come back to. And one might fly a little bit in the face of what we were just talking about with patience. Uh, but uh, the second one will come back to that theme. So the first I'd say is be bold. Um, I think right now requires a bit of bold thinking and being willing to be contrarian in this environment is not a bad thing. Um, So when everybody's talking about the idea that inflation can never come back down and you're seeing, you know, the headline prints stubbornly high, like ask the question, like, is there something that we're missing and what might that be? And how might that lead me to think differently about what I'm doing in in the portfolio? So that, that would be one piece of advice. And then the second one is actually a piece of advice that I didn't take. Uh, I had a mentor many years ago who uh, told me that my problem was that I thought that the world was fair. And I took that and I said back to him, uh, the world is fair. It just may not operate on my time horizon. <laughs> and I, um, and I, I raised that because I think it comes back to this patience idea. Uh, because investing is a difficult discipline. It's really those who get it right 51% of the time should feel incredibly uh, fortunate. But I do believe that if you look at relationships over time and you're thoughtful and you actually have done the work to understand those relationships, uh, eventually the world will be fair and you will be rewarded for that work. So uh, I suppose my thoughts are um, are just from experience. I think it's it's, um, 2022 was a pretty traumatic year. 
but it's it's past now. Uh, <laughs> and, and and you know, looking forward, so we still have uncertainty, right? But I think things are going to get back to a bit more normal. I'm actually enjoying being able to ask those questions um, that come from almost like my generation, which was my experiences in the earlier part of my career were very different and led me to um, expectations about what might be happening now, which could be wrong. And so just just be open to to listening to differences of views. Um, but but again, it just is still always for me comes back to the thing that gives me comfort and confidence uh, and reduces my anxiety is actually to think about time frame. Right? I've I've still even though I talked about I've, I've had a few years under my belt, I've still got plenty of time. And and so long as you have time, just focus upon that, reduce the anxiety, let the team of professional fund managers that we've got working for us and with us at ASB manage your money and get great outcomes for you and and just like de-stress and uh, focus on your time frame. It was sage wisdom. Um, so from thought leadership like that to leaving audiences or listeners here with because often when I listen to podcasts, you want to know more, or you want to, what's the next listen, what's the next read? Um, Laurie, is there anything you're reading or listening to right now that you, you'd recommend um, investors go to or, or check out as such? Well, I picked up a book um, very recently. It's a couple of years old, and it's called Freedom's Forge. And it's by a gentleman by the name of Arthur Herman. And it's about the buildup of the American weapons arsenal uh, leading up to World War II. Um, so, so I'm not necessarily a, a, usually a war book fan, but what I love about it is the way it brought together, you know, American ingenuity and business and government and uh, politics and, you know, statesmanship uh, in a way that really uh, rallied the U.S. to, to help uh, take that challenge on. And oh, by the way, it sort of starts in the Great Depression. So it's also uh, kind of nice to know that even if things do go really bad, which we don't think they're going to go, uh, there's always some catalyst to kind of get us out of it. But it's been a fun read so far. Uh, not so much books, but uh, some podcasts that I've been listening to recently. There's a, there's a particular channel that I find uh, that I've been finding fascinating. Um, called Smarter Every Day, actually, just some really off-the-wall topics. One of them was about nuclear submarines and how they manufacture the the oxygen that allows them to stay underwater. And it's just, I just, that sort of stuff just fascinates me. And uh, so that's, that just that's like de-stresses after a day at the office as I'm driving home. It's, a, it's not a bad, uh, not a bad listen. I've found that podcast listening and reading more actual tangible books is a great way to tune out from the daily gyrations of the market. Yeah. Like if you watch it as close as probably we do, it's a really good way to stop watching your fund or your portfolio, and it's a good hobby. Yeah. So I've, just as an insight into what I'm reading, I'm, I picked up a book that is 400 pages on the history of interest rates. So um, it's, only, it's only recently released, but I can tell you um, if I haven't had a coffee, it is slow going. So yeah. that gives you an insight into what I'm on. You're such a nerd. Um, I just want to thank you both. I am a nerd. <laughs> I just want to thank you both for a great conversation. Thank you, Laurie. For, um, I know you have a very busy schedule, so I just want to thank you, and I'm sure John does as well, for um, yes, making indeed. some time for, for us at ASB. 
Thank you to John. Thank you. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and that takes us to the end of the podcast. As always, we hope you feel more informed and up to date with everything that's happening in the markets. You have a better insight into what ASB and our wonderful partners are doing. Uh, and then you've got a few key takeaways to help you on your investment journey. So until next time, it's bye for now. Thanks for listening to the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on a future show, get in touch at podcasts at asb.co.nz.